Welcome to the Inside Scoop Live podcast, where indie authors get personal about their books, their writing, and their passions. I'm your host, Sherry Hoyt. Join me for some lively conversations with debut indie authors and seasoned veterans alike. It's a great place to find your next amazing read or even get inspired. So sit back and enjoy the show and let me know what you think. Hey everyone, thanks for joining the show today. If you like legal and political thrillers, you're really going to love my guest today. Mark Bello is the author of the Zachary Blake legal thriller series, and it's all about social justice. In fact, all of his novels feature topics that are in the headlines today. And Mark's here today to talk about his latest book in the series, Betrayal High, which is a story about school shootings and the causes behind them. But before we get started, let's get the inside scoop about Mark. As an attorney and social justice advocate, author Mark Bello draws upon over 40 years of courtroom experience in writing his Zachary Blake legal thriller series. A Michigan native, Mark received his B.A. in English literature from Oakland University and his law degree from Thomas M. Cooley Law School. After 40 years in and around the law, Mark turned to writing to provide readers with real-life snippets of how our criminal or civil justice systems might handle various ripped-from-the-headlines topics. Combining his legal experience and passion for justice with a creative writing style, Mark brings captivating and thought-provoking novels to his readers. When Mark's not writing legal and political novels, he writes and posts about political, legal, and social justice issues on his website and as a feature writer for The Legal Examiner. In his spare time, Mark enjoys traveling and spending time with his family. Mark and his wife, Toby, have four children and eight grandchildren. You can learn more about Mark and his work by visiting his website, at www.markmbello.com. Hi, Mark. Welcome to Inside Scoop Live. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, I've been excited. Looking forward to talking with you ever since I read your book, Betrayal High, uh, which is due to come out in just a few days. Can you tell us a little bit about the storyline? Well, first of all, you wrote me a great review, so thank you for that. I'm glad you liked the book. The book is about uh, a school shooting. But much, much more, as you know. Mm-hmm. What I tried to do is discuss the tragedies of school shootings from multiple points of view. And from a social justice standpoint, kind of indicate that there are multiple causes of a school shooting, including mental health issues, including gun issues, including school safety in general including community factors. Um, It's not just about some deranged, angry young man who decides to shoot up a school. Right. Uh, And and I I also tried to deal with how both the criminal and civil justice systems would deal with such an event. And for those of, uh, of your listeners who don't understand what I just said, the legal system has two different systems, one covering people suing each other for damages and the other covering criminal activity. Mm-hmm. Criminal activity is the situation where a prosecutor charges someone with a crime and that person defends himself in a criminal action. If somebody hurts you, like in a car accident, uh, you would sue that person in civil court. So there are basically two systems. And I tried to deal with the incident coming from both systems. Yeah, yeah, and and that's what I liked about it, um, because I think we all too often uh, focus on the criminal side, but not so much the civil side. 
Well, you'd be surprised. The civil side is actually a, a huge political football. Major corporations like the gun industry, like insurance companies, like to restrict people's access to the courts and limit their ability to sue and how much they can collect. And the book touches on that a bit. The, the gun lobby, when George W. Bush was president, as the book points out, successfully passed a law that called the uh, American Lawful Commerce and, Act, and Arms Act, I think it is. Mm-hmm. I, forget what, I forget exactly what it was called. The book will tell you. <laughs> <laughs> In 2005, and it basically makes gun manufacturers immune from lawsuits. They can't be sued for shootings perpetrated with their guns. They can be sued only for a defect in the gun if the gun backfires or hurts you because it doesn't function properly. But if you shoot somebody, intending to shoot somebody, for whatever reason, typically you've got to show uh, some kind of malice on the part of the gun manufacturer to be able to sue them successfully. Yeah, that, that makes so, absolutely the, the, no the, sense and, to me. <laughs> And the book and the book points that out. Well, it makes some sense. In fairness, a gun, as you and I can agree, is an inherently dangerous product. Mm-hmm. The intent of a gun is to shoot uh, and perhaps kill something. You can talk about target practice and what have you, but the main purpose of a gun is to kill or or injure. Yeah. So when you create a product that has that intent, there has to be something more to hold those people who create the weapon responsible. And for instance, and, and I don't want to give away pieces of the book, right? but an issue of who you sell a gun to and under what circumstances that sale occurs is very important in determining liability. So if a, if a 16-year-old kid or an 18-year-old kid, uh, I, I forget how old um, Kevin Burns is in the novel, <laughs> I wrote it. I wrote it. But I can't remember how old he is. But but uh, you find that you find that true of, of authors? They don't remember certain things that they write. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. I mean, <laughs> I I, I, I'm, I want to say he's close to eighteen, but I'm not positive. But you know, he's grown. Um, he's grown since you wrote the book, too. That's so. <laughs> true. That's true. He, he aged. He aged during the book. <laughs> the important question relative to gun sellers and gun manufacturers in the book is how did this kid get a gun? Mm-hmm. And as you know from reading the book, there are multiple parties responsible for that. Yeah. So that is an exception to this draconian law that prevents people from uh, suing gun manufacturers. Mm, okay. Now, I love what you just did there, um, giving both sides of the argument, and it's something that I felt you did throughout the book. And one of the reasons I found the story so compelling, um, you exposed me to different viewpoints and some that I may not have considered had I not read your book. Well, attorneys typically uh, try to look at things from all sides of the equation. You, you can't represent your client, even, even though you advocate for a particular side, you can't advocate and correctly evaluate a person's case unless you understand and appreciate and defend against, for lack of a better way to say it, the other point of view. So you have to very carefully understand the other 
side's point of view in order to successfully pursue the case. Yeah. By the way, I I have a definite point of view. Oh, yeah. You know, that, that becomes very clear in the book. But I certainly try to present what the other side is thinking and what their defenses are to a particular uh, charge, for lack of a better way to say it. Right, right. And I got that, you know, from the, the gun manufacturer side without giving away too much of the story. I, I heard their arguments and, and I heard lots of different arguments. To I mean, just there's a lot of responsibility to go around. There uh, sure is. Yeah. And, now, these, and these events don't happen in a vacuum. The, the lead up to an event like this, at least in this case, and not all cases involve bullying, mm-hmm. but as uh, I'm not giving much away uh, because it happens very early. But uh, after the shooting occurs and they evaluate the whys of the tragedy, they find out that the young man that committed the crime has been a victim of long-term bullying by other students in the school. He doesn't, he's, he's a misfit. He doesn't fit into the Bloomfield community very well. Right. And that, and that, that part of the story has multiple elements of fault uh, from from the kids' parents to the school system to the parents of other kids who haven't properly uh, educated their kids on how to treat other people. Again, as you said, there's a lot of blame to go around. Yeah. And I feel like betrayal high can impact our future leaders, our our young teens. And there's so much room for... for, um, There are so many conversations that need to happen around this subject. And I feel like Betrayal High can do that. And was that part of your motivation for writing this story? Well, that's always a part of my motivation. I'm trying to educate readers on multiple fronts. Mm -hmm. And and, uh, educate might be a bad word, enlighten. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not arrogant enough to think I'm smarter than somebody else. Uh, But uh, in a particular setting, and in, in my genre, the legal setting, I'm basically trying to enlighten people on all of the possible ways an event like this can occur, what environment is necessary for bad things to happen, and what people and and businesses and governments can do to prevent tragedies like this. Uh, And that's what I'm trying to do. I, I don't know that I'm being wildly successful doing it. Mm. And it's certainly my point of view, not everybody's, but uh, that's the purpose of the book. Yeah. Yeah. Now I I know you can't do this now um, virus and all the the age we live in, (laughs) but have you ever done any speaking engagements at schools? Because I feel like that would be very well received. I have not. How do you feel like that would be received? I haven't tried, so I really can't say. Yeah. I would imagine reasonably well. I'm I'm not necessarily an expert uh, in school shootings. I'm not a clinical psychologist. I'm not a uh, uh, an educator. Uh, I'm not a school administrator. I did a lot of research for this book. Mm-hmm. I wrote it from a, a, the perspective of the legal system and basically a civil lawyer's perspective, adding some criminal uh, elements to it. It was a pretty easy criminal case to. Uh, pursue against the shooter. Mm-hmm. You'll find out later in the book that there's some other criminal elements that I won't mention. Uh, spoiler alert, 
Right. <laughs> right. Uh, that, I, that, I, that I won't mention for uh, wanting not to spoil the uh, subsequent events. But for the most part, uh, if a kid walks into school and starts shooting, that kid's going to prison. Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't think that's spoiling anything for anybody. Right. So the criminal aspect of the case was relatively easy. The question was, what crime did he commit? How long will he spend in jail? And so on. And those are important elements of the book. But mainly, the book deals with the civil system. Responsible parties for the purpose of paying damages to victims, mm-hmm. uh, and a, a little bit of a lesson in how we can do better in the future. Yeah. Now, you know, you say you're not an expert, but you are an expert in the legal field, and so how do you use that? Well, the, the answer to the question you haven't asked me is, <laughs> is um, at least I think it, it, it's what it is. And this gets back to what I said about the uh, Lawful Commerce, Commerce and Arms Act, the legal system is a very important tool in preventing bad conduct. Not just from a criminal standpoint, where someone goes to prison if they do something illegal, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, step one is you don't rob the local grocery store, A, because you're a good person. But B, because if you get caught, you might end up behind bars, right? Right. Okay, so that's, that's a deterrent to bad behavior, the criminal system. The civil system is a deterrent to bad behavior, mostly by large corporations, like insurance companies, uh, like people represented by insurance companies. You don't drive 90 miles an hour for two reasons. One, you might kill somebody. Actually, three reasons. One, you might kill yourself. Two, you might kill somebody else. And three, it might cost you a lot of money or your insurance company a lot of money. So we create laws to keep people under control on our roadways. Mm-hmm. Similarly, in corporate America, corporations do a lot of what they do, rightly or wrongly, for profit. Mm-hmm. Guns are produced, guns are sold for the purpose of making a company profit. And in the case of Barrington Arms, the gun manufacturer in the novel, large profits. So the question is if something bad happens with one of their products, shouldn't their profits be used to compensate victims? And what happens is. Large corporations and insurance companies lobby the government, state, local, and federal, to pass laws like the Commerce and Arms Act to uh, restrict a person's right to pursue litigation. Not just can I sue, because, you know, for a a filing fee, you can sue anybody you want. Mm -hmm. The, The question is, can you sustain the lawsuit? A, and B, how much can you collect? Now, the uh, Bush Commerce in Arms Act of 2005 prevents lawsuits. You can't even file a lawsuit unless certain things happen. 
But there are many, many, many statutes. Uh, the the uh, medical malpractice and product liability areas of the law are the best examples. There are many areas where doctors and manufacturers are protected by how much money a person can collect in a particular incident. They'll cap your damages at a certain number. And the problem with that is that a victim who has suffered, uh, I'll throw out a number, let's just say a million dollars worth of damage. Mm -hmm. And we can discuss all, all day long how you measure that, but put that aside for a second. Right. Uh, the case is worth, let's say, a million bucks. But you can only collect $250,000 because the law says that's all you can collect. Mm. There's a lot of statutes like that. And insurance companies are laughing at us. They're collecting premiums from us for bad behavior results and then not having to pay full value for the results of their bad behavior. Right, right. Uh, so, and, 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 and the public, I'll, I'll bet you, Sherry, don't even know that those laws exist, correct? Well, that's what I was going to say. It's like, how did the little guys know these things, you know? They um, don't. They right. don't. I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you how they, I'll tell you how they find out. They become a victim of a particular circumstance or accident, and they find out real quick how little they're going to get paid because of some law like the Bush 2005 law. Yeah, that's crazy. That just, that gets me all riled up. <laughs> As it should. As it should, yeah. And, and, and it's not a Republican or a Democratic issue. Right. It's a national tragedy. It's, it's, if, you, if you ask a conservative Republican who, let's say, is a Second Amendment advocate, uh, and I kind of mentioned this in the book, most people don't realize that America has a Seventh Amendment, not just the Second Amendment. Do you know what the Seventh Amendment says? Uh-oh, no. <laughs> the Seventh Amendment says that I can sue you for hurting me as long as the damages I suffered exceed $25. Mm. That's what the Seventh Amendment says. If that's true, then how can the government violate the Seventh Amendment mm. by putting a cap on the damages I suffered and making it easier for you rather than easier for me, the victim? Right. But that's what these tort reform statutes do. Why am I bringing that up? Because a Second Amendment Republican, a Tea Party conservative constitutional Republican, does not support tort reform. Mm-hmm. He wants you to have the absolute right under the Seventh Amendment to sue people and collect damages. It's that middle ground, those people who successfully lobby and allow people to lobby them for this kind of relief. I call this corporate welfare. Mm. A Republican typically, and I don't want to get into politics right, per right. se, but the concept of welfare is very abhorrent to a typical Republican. Yeah. Uh, but, the con but the concept of corporate welfare is okay. And that kind of drives me wild. If you say <laughs> to somebody, if you say to somebody you're poor and you're looking for a government handout, screw you. Go get a job. Fend for, your, fend for yourself. Go get a job. Yeah. 
But if you're a corporation and you say, my profits are less than I'd like them to be because of all these lawsuits, help me, they'll pass a tort reform statute to limit damages. Yeah. Or, or let's give I call, you a government I, bailout. Yeah. I call that constitutional hypocrisy. Hmm. There are a couple of statements in your book that, that stuck with me. And one of them is you can't pick and choose your amendments that you choose to follow. And, and that's that what you're talking correct. about here. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You're either for the Constitution or you're against it. Right. Now, uh, you know, do I, do I love the Second Amendment? Do I think the Second Amendment is, has been interpreted correctly? That's a whole different argument. Right. I think the Second Amendment has been politicized and extended beyond anything that the constitutional framers had in mind. Right. As I indicate in the book, I think I make an offhand comment about single-shot muskets. In 1776-1787, the gun of choice was a single-shot musket. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to 2020, where you can get an AK-47 or an AR-15 that shoots, you know, 100 rounds in in five seconds or something like that. I don't know much about guns, but uh, automatic weapons shoot shoot an awful lot of uh, bullets in a very short amount of time, as Kevin Burns uh, demonstrated. Did the framers have that in mind? Does anybody really need that to hunt? Does anybody really need an AK-47 to, for protection? Uh, now, some people will say yes. I, I guess they're, yeah. they're entitled to their point of view, but I, I just don't see it. Yeah, I, uh, I guess. I, I, do agree, I do agree there's a Second Amendment in this country, and people have a right to bear arms. Yeah. But, you know, common sense is what I'm looking for. Yeah, common sense. That's we, we, oh, that's a whole nother issue because we are so lacking yes. in common yes, sense. It yes, it is. But, you know, as the mother of a high school English teacher, I feel that safety in schools uh, for 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 everyone, the students, all the students and teachers, um, the basic right to live outweighs any gun rights. That's just me. <laughs> well, you know, that's an, inter- that's an interesting point of view. We also have a right to uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in this country. <laughs> yeah. So uh, some of this stuff conflicts with each other. There's no question about that. Right, right. So all of your books tackle a different injustice, um, I would call them an injustice, <laughs> a betrayal. <laughs> yeah. Lawyers do it. Yeah. As an author, you just have a, a great platform to entertain as well as inform. And I think that's why I really like fact-based fiction. That's why I like historical fiction, um, because I'm learning while I'm being entertained. Well, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that the book isn't educational. Yeah. Or that that all of my books are educational uh, or or are not educational. They certainly um, provide uh, educational enlightenment, let's say. Uh, all I'm saying is that uh, to, to your question about speaking in high schools, mm. I could I could speak in generalities about how I think the legal system uh, could be used as a tool to prevent tragedy. I can speak about uh, the civil justice system and how that works to curb behavior, and of course the criminal justice system as to how that works to curb behavior. But I'm not an expert in mm-hmm. uh, the uh, 
environment that has to be created. Uh, even though I did some research on it, I, I, yeah. I'm not going to say I didn't teach myself. Uh, that's another point of, uh, about being an author that that's kind of fun is you, you say to yourself, I want to write a book. I want to write a book about this. And in, in the case of Betrayal High, it's about a school shooting from multiple perspectives. And then you seek to educate yourself on the topic you chose. Mm-hmm. So it, it's a very fulfilling activity to uh, research and write about the fruits of your research. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm learning right along with the reader when I write a novel. Yeah. And, and so I, I love that, you know, as a lawyer, your background in law uh, helped you create this series. Right. And so that's what you know. So you, so you, cause you always hear, write what you know. And then what I also like to think is, well, all right, take, take and write what you know, but then also incorporate what you want to learn about into your story. So you write what you know, and you write what you want to learn about. And that's where the research comes in. And the end result is, you know, a wonderful, entertaining and enlightening story. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I figure, I, I look at it this way. Is it entertaining me? Mm-hmm. Is finding out about certain things uh, and what leads, what leads up to particular events and how the various entities or systems deal with them Uh has the research been interesting? Is the topic and discussion of the topic interesting to me? If it's interesting to me, then it should be interesting to the reader. Now, the reader doesn't have a law degree, and perhaps the reader doesn't understand certain legal topics or legal issues, but I try to write in some degree of layman's terms mm-hmm. so that people understand where I'm coming from. Right. Like it's it's complicated to discuss the the whys and wherefores of a law like the uh, Commerce and Arms Act of 2005. The average person, first of all, doesn't know the law exists. Right. A, and B, they don't understand why such a law is necessary. Now, if you ask me, <laughs> it isn't. <laughs> right. <laughs> but I certainly understand the points of view of those people who think it is. And as I said before, a criminal gets their hands on a gun. A criminal shoots somebody. Is the gun manufacturer responsible for using the gun exactly the way he was supposed to? It's a weapon. It shoots bullets. If you aim it at somebody and shoot, you're going to hurt or kill someone. Right. That's what the product is intended to do. It, that's on the shooter not on the gun manufacturer, right? Uh. The answer to that question, I know you're hesitating, but the answer to that question is yes. The better question is, who did you sell it to? Did you sell it appropriately? Did you do the appropriate things to determine whether that person ought to be someone who owns a gun? Did you do all the right things before you sold the gun to that person? Then, then and only then, in my opinion, should you consider... Uh, not being liable for that. Hmm. If, uh, on the other hand, you market in the dark web, if you sell black market items, if you 
uh, are in business purely for profit and you don't care what the result of, you don't care who gets the weapons or what they do with the weapons, then I think you have some serious liability problems, or you should. Right. And, and unfortunately, this 2005 Act makes it much, much more difficult to hold the gun manufacturers and sellers responsible. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of dealt with in the book. Right. Yeah. And, and that's what I was hesitating because I was like, well, you said if a criminal gets a gun and well, a criminal shouldn't be able to buy a gun, but it's easy enough for a criminal to get a gun. If someone wants a gun, they're going to get it regardless. How can we as stop long that? It is, but it, I, I'm going to draw a comparison for you. If someone gets a gun by stealing it, let's say, or, you know, breaking into their father's gun cabinet, that's on the father and the son. Mm-hmm. But was the father someone who should have a gun? That should be on the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. And, and again, I, I don't know if we're getting far afield or not, but <laughs> I'll give you a better example. Uh, drugs. In Michigan, a very conservative governor by the name of John Engler was governor here for 12 years, and he declared war on the trial lawyers, not only appointed very conservative judges, but he had a conservative House of Representatives and a conservative Senate. Uh, He had the trifecta. And he passed a law that said if the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, approves a drug and the drug turns out to be defective, in other words, the drug maims, hurts, or kills you, Mm -hmm. you cannot sue the manufacturer for making that bad drug because the FDA approved it. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I, that, would, that would suggest that the FDA is infallible. Right. FDA approval doesn't mean you've made a safe drug, and you should be responsible if you make an unsafe drug, even if the FDA gets it wrong. Right. But, but today, 20 years later, Michigan still has this drug immunity law, and if you have a heart valve problem because you took Fen-Fen, or uh, the problems that some of the fertility drugs have, or the birth control drugs have, or the heartburn drugs have, in Michigan, you can't sue the manufacturer because those drugs were approved by the FDA. Now, now <laughs> what's, funny, what's funny about that? What drug is out on the market that isn't approved by the FDA? Zero. Yeah. So what, what this basically does is in Michigan, it gives, it gives manufacturers of drugs a complete free pass to harm and kill people. Ugh. Now, I, I'm not suggesting that drug manufacturers deliberately create bad drugs to kill and hurt people. Right. Of course they don't. Uh, uh, Grissom wrote a great book. I can't remember what, what the name of it was. Mm, yeah, um, I think I read it. I can't, <laughs> yeah, I, I, it might be, it might be the Rainmaker. I'm not positive. Um, but uh, there's a great book written by Grissom about this issue that that uh, essentially the drug the drug industry uh, gets um, tort reform. Now in Michigan, it's complete tort reform. Uh, you can't sue at all mm. in in the setting that. Uh, that Grissom wrote about, it was restrictions on the ability to pursue uh, damages in a drug case. And, and again, 
and what I want your listeners to understand is, again, this is this is not just a Republican Democrat issue because a lot of what I'm talking about is very Republican friendly. Mm-hmm. You don't want a citizen to be supported by the government. You want that citizen to be able to stand up for themselves, support themselves, work. You want the private sector to handle the support of our citizens. That's a Republican point of view. Mm-hmm. Step one. Step two, you pass a law like the one I just mentioned in Michigan. Step three, a person gets uh, disabled from taking a particular drug and can no longer work. He gets Social Security disability. He has limited options in suing somebody. He goes on welfare. He gets food stamps. Who's supporting that person? You and me, the, the taxpayers. taxpayers. Yeah, yeah. Isn't that anti-Republican? <laughs> yeah. Now, why would, why would the Republican Party or the conservative elements of our society support welfare for the wealthy corporations to deny private payments to citizens they harm, allowing that citizen to then become someone who is supported by the government? Right. It's complete. It's complete half-ass backwards. I know. How do you do what you do without going crazy? <laughs> well, I, I try to do the best I can to get the story out there. Yeah. Guns and drugs are just one example. A defective toy that injures a kid. A defective car. Do you remember the Pinto? I do. Yeah. The Ford Pinto had a defect. You recall what it was? Uh, you can't hit it in the back end, right? Because? Will it blow up or something like that? It blew up. It yeah. blew up. It <laughs> caught fire and blew up. Yeah. Big problem for Ford Motor Company back in the 70s. Yeah. Uh, in fact, it harmed Ford for a long time. They were, quote, famous, unquote, or infamous right. for creating the Pinto. So you're the person that's driving the Pinto. You purchased it because it's an, uh, a car you can afford. And again, here we are. here we are looking at Wealth, a person who buys a Pinto is someone who uh, is of limited means and needs an affordable car. Mm-hmm. So you're out there driving the Pinto to work at your $5 an hour job back in the 70s. If you were well paid, maybe seven fifty. You get hit in the rear and the car blows up and you're a scarred for life, a burn victim, uh, completely disabled or dead. Oh. Tort reform says your recovery for pain and suffering is limited to 250 grand. That's not right. That, yeah, that's not right. That wouldn't cover anything today. Now, when I say, I said pain and suffering. Yeah. You get your medical bills, you know, although even some of that is capped. Oh, okay, yeah. But the idea that the, that the government steps in and says to the citizen who needs the support, you can't collect this, you can only collect that, because we want to help out Ford Motor Company. How's that any different than providing welfare to the poor? Right. Now, the answer is because the poor needs it and the rich doesn't. (laughs) Yeah. That's the difference, but that's not the difference that they cite. Yeah. And and there's many, many examples of the wealthy 
getting bailed out by the government. Take when Obama took over for Bush and that bailout. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Take take, take the recent um, PIP loans where people are out uh, getting millions and millions of dollars from the government without needing them. Right. Oh, my God. Uh, that drives me crazy. Those are things. I, I think the intention was well, was was good. Oh, yeah. Um, their companies were being given incentives to maintain employees on their payroll. I thought it was for small businesses. I didn't know it was for well, large it was, corporations. It was, they, well, yeah. it, it, that's the problem. They expanded it. And by the way, when you think about large corporations getting this money, what that did is it prevented some of the small companies that really needed it from getting it because the money ran out pretty right. quickly. Some of your responsible corporate citizens gave the money back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of large companies that got PIP loans, as they call them, that didn't need them and didn't use them to support the purpose for the act. Right. Everybody thinks very carefully about welfare when it's being doled out to people who really need it. Right. But they don't seem to put on their thinking caps when it's time to bail out a corporation. The question is, is that corporation important to interstate commerce? Uh, do they pay a lot of taxes? Do they help keep people employed? That seems to be all they think about. Right. There, there's a, again, I, I used the word hypocrisy before. There's a lot of hypocrisy going on in government in terms of how uh, bailouts and welfare is distributed. Yeah. There's a lot of material out there uh, these days to provide you with a lot of uh, inspiration for many, many books. Is that fortunately yep. or unfortunately, I guess? <laughs> well, I, I would say it's unfortunate. Uh, another example of a bailout is bankruptcy. You look at my first book, Betrayal of Faith, which is about clergy abuse and the church and the cover-up of child abuse committed by members of the clergy. Mm -hmm. A lot of the churches who got hit by large verdicts in that area of the law went bankrupt and funds had to be created that compensated the victims at less than full value. Mm -hmm. Hmm. So that's another example where uh, I wouldn't call it tort reform. I don't think anybody passed a law that says the church is immune from uh, lawsuits for this kind of behavior or restricted damages corporately, but there's a practical effect of, of uh, being able to file a Chapter 7 or uh, whatever the equivalent chapter is for, for a nonprofit to restrict payments to child abuse victims. Mm. Uh, that's my first book, Betrayal of Faith. Yeah, so Betrayal High is your fifth book, right? Correct. Fifth. I love reading series, and unfortunately, I came into this series in book five, but I understand <laughs> that I can go You'll back. Have to start over. I will have to start over. I understand I can go back and read one um, independently, each one, because they each involve a different case. Uh, so I, I do look forward to doing that. Most people who have looked at my books and reviewed my books have said they work as standalone books. Yeah, and I can um, see that. And yeah. I. And I and I try, uh, I try to catch the reader up a little bit. I mention uh, in, in little tidbits throughout uh, a novel what's happened in the past. Mm -hmm. 
and I, I would agree that the books can re- be read standalone. Having said that, if you want to follow the trajectory of Zachary Blake, his limited success and his great success, you would need to start at the beginning. Right. Character development. Yeah. Very much so. And, and, and his sons. It's interesting uh, to take his sons from age 9 and 12 to uh, age 16 and 18 in Betrayal High. Yeah. There's a lot of growing in that age span. There sure is. Yeah. So Betrayal High, it's out now for pre-order, but it'll be available August 1st. Well, it releases August Correct. 1st. Uh, it's, so actually I... released, it's actually released in paperback. If you want to buy a hard copy, you can buy the hard copy. Which okay. The, the, the uh, e-book is available August 1st. Yeah. So talk about marketing for a bit. I mean, you have this phenomenal series. How do you get it out in front of readers? If you have the secret sauce for that, uh, I mean, it's word of mouth and, you know, just it's, it's extremely difficult. And, and, and because of self-publishing, which I've benefited from, by the way, right. Almost anybody can write a book and publish it. And the market is quite saturated, especially Amazon. Yeah. Uh, with all kinds of, uh, genres of books and it's hard to, um, What's the phrase? Wheat, wheat from chaff. Mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Separate the wheat from the chaff. Yeah, it, it's, yeah. It's, so, even if you've written an outstanding book and you're self-published, it's hard to find you. It is. It is very hard. I can think of some books that I loved that nobody read, or hated that everybody read. Yeah. So. Um, yeah, and the books I love, I, I, I just want to tell everybody about, and and I think that's the key. That's why you know you, you got to get out there well, on social what, media. You know, you got to. That's what I need you to do, Sherry. I'm I'm gonna do it. I'm doing it. That's what I need you to do. <laughs> you tell ten people, and they tell ten people, and they tell ten people, that's and right. so on and so on and so on. That's right. So, but I, I you know, my my biggest disappointment is is uh, most people who have read my books think they're very good. I'm not somebody that's going to say, I've written terrific books, read them. Mm-hmm. Criticism or praise is for someone else to do, not the person who puts the book out. Mm-hmm. I'm satisfied with the books I wrote. I think they're, from my own point of view, quality books. But uh, whether a book is successful, whether a book is enjoyed, is for someone else to decide. Yeah. Uh, but what's disappointing to me is that uh, most people who read my books love my books. That's not bragging. That's just the way it is. If you if you look at the reviews that have been published for all of my books, they're overwhelmingly positive. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet, uh, I'm having great difficulty getting a large cross-section of people to try them. Yeah. For whatever reason, I, I, I presume it's because uh, the marketing machine, there are experts at that. And there are people like me who are writers, not marketers, and do the best they can. Well, that yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you, you can't just write a book and you're done with it anymore. It's okay, now you've written the book and now it's on to your next full-time job, market it. Well, if so. you're... If you're if you're somebody that's published uh, that has an agent and marketing is done for you, 
Um, you know, it's funny. There's a lot of there's a lot of examples of this out there, mm-hmm. but Amazon is a great example of what I'm about to talk about. <laughs> Amazon Amazon will promote you if you are successful. If right. you if you release a book on August 1st, like I'm going to, and a thousand people purchase it on August 1st, Amazon will churn the machine and actually spend money promoting you because they make money on your product. Yeah. If you sell 10 copies on August 1st, they won't because they won't waste their time on somebody who hasn't been successful out of the gate. Right. And that's the same kind of with traditional publishers. They're not, not willing to take a chance on a new author. So correct. it, it correct. goes back I've, to that I've old lived... ring. You know, you can't get a job unless you have experience. You can't have, get experience unless you have a job. And, you know, that, <laughs> that circle. I've lived, li- I've lived that lesson. Yeah, uh, that's true. But that's true, by the way, when you get out of law school, you're you're, you go looking for a job Mm. and they say, do you have any experience? (laughs) Well, no, I just got out of law school. Well, come and see me when you have a few years under your belt. Well, how do (laughs) I get a few years under my belt if no one will hire me? Right. The old Uh, catch 22. You end up up hanging your own shingle. Yeah. um, uh, It's a a rich get richer philosophy. Mm. I guess that's why you write because you love it without the expectation of getting rich. And if that happens there, on the side, is, you know, <laughs> nice. There is some, there is some truth to that, but it's still disappointing. Yes. I, I, I understand that. Yeah. And, and by the way, it's not about money. It, it's about, uh, what we talked about. It's about yeah. having something to say, uh, trying to get the public to understand how they're being screwed out there. Mm-hmm. and wanting a lot of people to find out what it is I'm complaining about. Yeah. And unfortunately, I haven't found that secret sauce yet. Yeah. Well, I, I think you have a great author platform. Um, your books are informative and fun and relevant. I mean, so relevant. You you say ripped from the headlines. Um some I'm not the, sure I like that phrase, but well, uh, <laughs> yeah, but you know what? I mean, some of the ink from those headlines is barely dry, and you know, like yeah, I said, you've got yeah, a lot uh, of information to work with. Yeah. Well, it, you know, it's to your point. It's interesting. I, I wrote a book called Betrayal in Black. I released it in December of 2019. It's about a police officer shooting an innocent black motorist who, mm. according to the police officer, uh, resembled "quote unquote" a black man who robbed a local Burger King. Mm-hmm. Forget the fact that the man that was pulled over was 20 years older than the Burger King robber. Forget the fact that he was in the car with his wife and his two kids. Mm-hmm. But this cop pulls him over and a, a, a shooting results. Fast forward a few months and the George Floyd incident happens. And right. you would think that the book would find an audience just from being relevant to these social justice issues that are essentially uh, at the top of the news in America today. Right. Uh, Yet the book is struggling. Hmm. It has 20 reviews, I think now. Wow. Uh, All of them overwhelmingly positive, like I said earlier. Mm -hmm. So again, I, <laughs> I didn't mean to turn your podcast into me complaining. No, no, you're. I just like people to find them. 
and give them a try. Yeah. So we've we've mentioned uh, Betrayal High comes out in a few days. You've already written Mm -hmm. the next one, I understand, in your series. It's Um, it's being edited as we speak. All right. All right. So so how many books do you crank out a year? You are busy. It varies. I mean, sometimes the juices flow and you can write pretty quickly. Sometimes it takes quite a while. Uh, I found Betrayal of Faith which was based on an actual case that I handled uh, in my practice, a difficult book to write, Mm. even though it was based on personal experience. Uh, Betrayal of Justice, which was written based on the 2016 election. Something happens in the news and it inspires me to write. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But uh, Betrayal of Justice is about anti-Muslim bias and a new president who declares war on Islam and decide to deport uh, the majority of Muslim immigrants from the country. To his delight, a young Muslim woman gets accused of murdering a white supremacist who bombed her local mosque in Dearborn, Michigan. Mm. And Dearborn, for, for those people who don't live in Michigan, Dearborn is the city in Michigan that has the largest concentration of Muslims in the United States. Oh wow! Okay. It's a, it's a East Dearborn is a huge has a huge Muslim population. So the book essentially condemns uh, bigotry and hatred and anti-Muslim bias, even if it's perpetrated by the president of the United States and white supremacy, and basically uh, discusses how we'd be a better country if we all got along. Yeah. Now, what could be more relevant than that? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I got accused, by the way, of some uh, conservative commentary uh, reviewers, quote, doing a hatchet job, unquote, on the president. Mm. And my response to that, uh, by the way, the reason I started telling you this story is because I wrote the book in less than four months. Okay. Wow. The election had... What was going on at the time had such an impact on me that it was a pretty easy book to write for me. I said to myself, if he's who he says he is, if Mexicans are bringing drugs and crime in his mind, if Muslims are all terrorists in his mind, then we're in for a rough four years if he gets elected. Mm -hmm. So I invented this fictional president who gets elected on a slogan of make America pure again. And as I indicated, wants to deport all Muslims. Here comes this young lady. She's, she's accused of murder. And he uses that as his rallying cry to begin his deportation process. Mm. So critics say I did a hatchet job on the president. My response is I wrote the book before he was elected president. Right. At least the first draft of it. Who imitated who? Interesting, huh? <laughs> he could have been somebody else. He chose to be the guy I wrote about. He chose to be who I feared he would be. Yeah, right, right. He didn't have to be. Yeah, it's not funny. That, that's on him, not on me. Right. Mm. So the only t- book we haven't mentioned is book three, which is um, Betrayal in Blue. It's kind of a follow-up to Betrayal in Ju- of Justice. The uh, Another white supremacist seeks revenge. I, I don't want to ruin betrayal of justice but seeks revenge for what happens in betrayal of justice mm, okay and and uh 
one of the hero cops in Betrayal of Justice chases him down to a northern Michigan town, and they end up in a confrontation, and the terrorist is killed. At least that's what the book says. And the cop goes on trial for murdering him, and it's kind of a cop versus cop. Oh, okay. Small town cops who yeah. are jealous of the big town cops huh. want to send this cop to prison. Wow. And Zachary Blake comes, uh, flies, flies his private jet because he's not wealthy, flies his private jet to Manistee, Michigan to represent Jack Dillon, the cop accused of murdering the white supremacist. Okay. So it's there, there, uh, if you're going to read Betrayal of Justice and Betrayal in Blue, I would read Justice and Blue together. Mm-hmm. They're not se- it's not a sequel, but it does follow book two. So, but, but listeners, start from book one, read the whole series. <laughs> I started with book five. Don't follow me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I'm going to go back and read them all because I really, I appreciate writers like yourself that, that get out there and, and stand for a cause and, and help spread the word about relevant issues in our lives. Yeah. Thank you. I try. I try. Yeah. If you look at social issues, social justice issues, civil justice issues. You've got, you've got clergy abuse, uh, child abuse of, of teenage boys in, in betrayal of faith. You've got white supremacy and anti-Muslim bias in betrayal of justice and betrayal in blue. You've got cop on black shootings and racial issues in book four, betrayal in black. You've got school shootings and the root causes of school shootings in book five, Betrayal High, mm-hmm. and book six, which you kind of mentioned, but we didn't discuss, Yeah, discusses the issue of sexual assault by the rich and powerful. Uh, it discusses a Supreme Court nominee who is accused by a young woman, now a middle-aged woman, I guess, of committing a sexual assault 20 years before his nomination. Hmm. That, yeah. that book is called Supreme Betrayal. There's a huge difference between the character in the book and Brett Kavanaugh, mm-hmm. which obviously gave me the idea for the book. Uh, I'm not going to run away from that. Right. But my character and the level of proof about the crime, uh, he's a much, much, uh, very much like Ronald John and Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. He's a, a very evil bad guy and i can't say that about brett kavanaugh because none of what brett kavanaugh was accused of was actually proven mm-hmm. you had the young lady come in and say he did certain things he was never prosecuted for them uh they were never proven and he actually got nominated and the issue went away and you, you didn't have a slew of women coming forward that said he was a sexual predator right well, uh, I'm going to give a little spoiler alert here, but in Supreme Betrayal, this gentleman, this wealthy, entitled, nasty, mean, evil guy, was the sexual predator. And uh, that's what Supreme Betrayal is about. Okay. As I always do when I rip something from the news, well, this would make a good book. Right. And I embellish it a bit. Well, so yeah. it's not It's not the story of Brett Kavanaugh. It's a story inspired by Brett Kavanaugh. Right. So for the people who are listening, 
who will say that I did a hatchet job on Brett Kavanaugh. The character, <laughs> the character in Supreme Betrayal is not Brett Kavanaugh. It's not about him. <laughs> no, correct. <laughs> okay. Oh, so goodness. let's nip, let's nip, let's nip that nip that in the bud right now. Okay, it's not about him. <laughs> Mark, thank you so much for visiting with me today. I really appreciate getting to learn more about you and your books, and I can't wait to read the rest of your series. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me today for my interview with Mark Bello, author of Betrayal High. You can learn more about Mark and his work by visiting his website at markmbello.com. And while you're here, be sure to check out a few of our other interviews at Inside Scoop Live.